Okay, let's pray if we can. I so appreciate the great discussion I'm hearing. Lord, once again, we ask that you would come and help us, Lord. Um, God, we acknowledge that there is so much we cannot comprehend in these verses, but we know that your word is profitable, and so we ask that you give us what you would have, that you would enlarge our minds, our hearts, our spirits, that, Lord, we would come away stunned by beauty of your grace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, the two most important issues in the universe are the glory of God and the salvation of souls. They are related because when a sinner trusts Christ and comes to God in salvation, that sinner brings glory to God. The glory of God is why we exist. The modern world does not believe that these are two of the most important issues. These issues are not even on the list in the world in which we live of what the world calls most important. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? The salvation of souls affects everyone, but it's never mentioned in our culture, hardly ever, because here is the truth. We are massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. We are massively preoccupied with the inconsequential. So the salvation of souls and the glory of God. If we live in such a way that we don't point people to the glory of God, then our lives are without positive significance, at least from God's viewpoint. I want to read you something that a man named David Wells wrote um, in a book called, I think, God of the Wasteland. He says this, and by the way, glory, we talk a lot in here about the glory of God, obviously, because that's, that's what we're created for. But in Hebrew, the word glory, kavod, can mean worth, value, beauty, majesty, a title of admiration, and heavy or weighty. Okay, so keep that in mind. It is, this is the quote. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. Those who are sure pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetite for affluence or influence, his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is a condition that we have assigned him after we have nudged him out of the periphery periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse, and the engine of modernity rumbles on, and he is but a speck in its path. So the glory of God is not only our purpose, but it is God's purpose. That's why we exist and where we find our greatest joy and satisfaction and Keep in mind that in order for God's glory to be seen, we need to see all aspects of his glory, 
all aspects of his character or we're not fully appreciating him. So as we move through these difficult chapters in Romans, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. What is our purpose and what does the glory of God mean? The thesis of Romans 1, 16 and 17 that Paul gave at the beginning is this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, for as it is written, the just or the righteous will live by faith. Paul gives in a nutshell what he is saying about what the gospel is, that alien righteousness that we get. And the gospel itself is powerful. It is powerful unto salvation. We've seen God offer his righteousness to the Jew and the Gentile. We saw in chapter 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then we started chapter 9 with the question, the real question that we're really answering as we continue in these chapters, has the word of God fallen because most of the Jews are not believing in Christ? We're looking at a lot of difficult concepts, but they all are there to support the answer to that question that the word of God has not fallen. Okay, Paul addressed this by redefining the Jews, not by ethnicity. We saw this last week, but by their faith. And he is using the doctrine of election to show that God's word has not fallen. It's always been about God's sovereign choosing, but about his mercy and grace to reveal his glory. Okay, we ended with Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so Paul now is going to go on what would be the most natural human objection by those who have an inadequate view of God. And our goal is that we're not going to have an inadequate view of God. We want a high view of God, okay? That's why it's hard for our minds to attain it, because it's a high view. So if you would look at Romans 9, and we're going to start with verses 14 and 15. And this is the most natural objection. When he's just said, um, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So the question is, if God loves some and hates others, is he unjust? That's not fair. And he, Paul answers, not at all. Now, you may feel that same objection rising in your heart as you're reading some of these verses. I, I, I want to kind of talk a little bit about this because I found some things that I, were helpful to me, and I hope I can communicate them to where listening, you, you can, can grab hold of this. First, I want to say that in the Bible, the word justice and righteousness are the same word. Okay, Just and righteous, the same word. It's all related to God's holiness, okay? God is just because he always acts according to righteousness. Justice is giving what is due, whether that's good or bad. He always acts in accordance with his holiness and his righteousness. Here's your first truth. God never does anything unjust. 
God never does anything unjust because he defines justice. God never does anything unjust because he defines justice. Now, I want to talk about two categories, justice and non-justice. Okay, so follow me with this. Everything that's outside of justice is non-justice. But there are two kinds of non-justice. Number one, the mercy of God is outside the circle of justice. Because if God was just, we would all be immediately sent to hell. So his mercy is outside the circle of justice in what we would call non-justice. Injustice is another type of non-justice, but it is evil. It violates righteousness, and God never is unjust because he cannot violate his own justice or righteousness. God, here's your next truth. God never, oh, no, I already gave that. God never commits injustice. I already said that. He never unjust. So God never commits injustice. However, people get confused because grace and mercy are outside of justice. Justice is necessary to righteousness, but mercy and grace are actions that God takes freely. He is not required to be merciful or to be gracious in order for himself to be just. When he does mercy and he does grace, He's not being just in regard to giving you what, he, what you deserve. The only way he can do that is because of what Christ did. Okay? And we'll talk about that verse in a minute. But I want you to start getting some of these categories. The moment we think God owes us mercy and grace, we're no longer thinking about mercy and grace because it cannot be owed. Justice may be owed. Here's your next truth. Justice may be owed, but grace and mercy are always voluntary. According to God, justice may be old, owed. He may owe you justice to uphold his righteousness, but grace and mercy are voluntary. They're not necessary for him to uphold his justice anyway. Now, remember, um, and I think I wrote this verse down. I think it was earlier in Romans where, and I thought I put that reference down, but I'm not seeing it right here. Maybe I did it later. Um, earlier in Romans where it talked about um, that because God had left the sins beforehand, remember he had to uphold his justice, he had waited like he forgave David, and when he forgave people, he could only do it because of what Christ was going to do in paying that price in order to uphold his holiness and justice. So the cross is a big piece of this in allowing God to uphold his justice and at the same time as he chooses to give mercy and grace. Um, the thing is that a lot of people argue, well, God's not just if he doesn't do it for everybody. So we need to really think about what justice means. It's getting what is owed. And because we're all sinners, we're owed more than that. Okay, but look what he says in verse 15. He says, I will have mercy. Okay, first he says, is God unjust? And then he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. His argument 
is almost stating the whole thing again. It's not even like an argument, but we're going to go back into the context and talk about why that is a response to God is not unjust. When you go back into the context of this, and I heard some people discussing this, and I I was really happy that y'all looked at that. In Exodus 32, the context of, of this laying the groundwork, God had done this miracle in bringing them out of Egypt And um, Moses was on the mountain with God receiving the law. The people got impatient. You know, it was only up there 40 days. But they wanted Aaron to make a calf to represent God, so to speak. But they were bringing in idolatry. They had already turned from God. It wasn't just the golden calf. It talked about them getting up to indulge in revelry, which a lot of people think that was a lot of sexual immorality. But what happened was, they had already turned from God. They denied his glory and chose something lesser because that's really what it is when we sin. We choose something lesser. 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And God was going to destroy them all for their sin. And rightfully so, that would have been just. But Moses interceded on the basis of God's glory and reputation, and God relented. Destroy them them all would have been just, but he brought a plague, but in that plague, not all of them were killed. So once again, we see God choosing. Not everybody was wiped out. But then God says he's going to send them to the promised land, but he's not going to go with them. Like, I'll give you what I promised, but I'm not going to go. And Moses said, if you don't go with us, don't send us here, because how are people going to know that we are your people? And then if we look at Exodus 33, verse 19... Let me get back over there. Moses, in verse 18, Moses says to God, after God says, okay, I'm going to do what you've asked because I'm pleased with you. Like my my presence will go with you. And Moses said, now show me your glory. Now this is amazing because if anybody had seen God's glory, been Moses, he'd been up on the mount. But it just goes to show you, the more you taste of his glory, the more you want it. Okay. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, which is Yahweh. In all, and it's all caps. It means Yahweh. And in your presence, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But you cannot see my face. No one may see me and live. All right, before we go into the next part, I want us to notice that. that that's what we're saying That's what Paul is saying. He's using that quote in this context of all of them deserving to be wiped out. Moses pleading and wanting God's presence with these rebellious, unworthy people. And I want you to think about previously when Moses met God in the burning bush and he asked his name. His name was Yahweh, which he just used here, Lord in all caps which means I am that I am. That is how God is defined. God's name is expressed in his freedom to have mercy on who he will have mercy, and his essence consists in being free from any constraint that originates outside his own will. That's what it means to be God. He is not constrained by anything outside of himself. I am that I am, and then... Further, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion. So here's your next truth. The essence of God's glory is that he is absolutely without cause or constraint outside of himself. And I'll give you that. It's long. The essence of God's glory 
is that he is absolutely without cause or constraint outside of himself. He's self-existent, self-existent. The essence of God's glory is that he is absolutely without cause or constraint outside of himself. It's very hard for us to get that because that's not us. And in verse 19, he said, I will, his glory, we see, I'll make my goodness pass before you. His glory is his goodness. And one writer said this, and I loved this. God will have us know him by the glory of his mercy more than the glory of his majesty. And we're going to see that as he reveals himself to Moses, that it was more about the glory of his mercy than the glory of his majesty when he's revealing this to Moses. And I want us to hang on to that, ladies, because in our humanness, we can have a tendency to look at, well, he's not having mercy on some. He's not saving those. We, we look at those things, and yet when he reveals himself, the fact that it's always about his compassion and his mercy, and that he would even do that to anyone is shocking when you get a true picture of the holiness of God. We have trouble with that because we are not holy and we can't understand the weight of sin. And yet we need to wrestle with it because we need a high view of God and we should be stunned by his goodness and his mercy. And so many people miss it in the Old Testament when they look at God's judgment or how he defeats enemies for his purpose. And they don't see that throughout every single scenario is his long suffering and his kindness, and we're going to see this next week, how he's held out his hands to a disobedient people over and over and over. You go through the prophets, what do you see over and over? Calling them back, calling them back, calling them back. And when you look at that in light of his holiness and righteousness, it is stunning, and it should be stunning. We should be moved by that more than anything else. Now, let's take a look at how he goes further in this revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. So he gets the two tablets again after he'd broken them in this whole deal. And verse 5 says, Then the Lord, Yahweh, came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Notice how he starts. Not only that he's self-existent, the one that says, I am, but he says, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Wow, that's a lot, ladies. That's how he starts. But we do have a yet because we have to see all of God's glory. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. There's his justice. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. So he does punish, but you see how short that is compared to over and over his goodness and his grace and his glory. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. that. Those verses became the Jews' working definition of God. We see it repeated in the Psalms and a lot of other places. In light of everything that's just happened and what the Israelites have done almost immediately after God delivered them, I want you to feel this. And yet he is sovereign in this. He does not owe us mercy and grace, but he chooses those on whom he'll have mercy and on whom he will have grace. 
Now, we get to verse 16, and it says, back in Romans 9, in verse 16, it does not depend, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So what does it, what is it? I ask that question in your homework. And I'm proposing that it means his choosing, his election. You don't earn it. It depends on God himself. Okay? Now, to elaborate on this, he brings up Pharaoh. He's just said it doesn't depend on human desire or effort. And so he uses Pharaoh in 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name, now let's look at his glory again, my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. God's purpose for Pharaoh was God's glory, to display his power and his name to be proclaimed. But God also was just in hardening for his own purposes. Um, We have scripture. Now, there's different views. We have scripture that says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 14, it says that. And numerous times we have scripture that says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 9, 10, 11, and 14. Some people believe that this teaches that when people choose to harden their heart, they then become unreceptive and God hardens them. That's one viewpoint. Others say that hardening is unconditional, just like election. And they use Exodus 4.21. When Moses was preparing to go to Egypt before any of this happened, God says, when you go to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. God said he was going to, before anything, he didn't say Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. He said, I will harden his heart. Some, the people that believe it's unconditional hardening use that. Exodus seven thirteen it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened as the Lord had said. Exodus seven twenty two so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened as the Lord had said. Wherever you come down in this hardening, remember, The goal was to display his power that his name would be proclaimed in the earth. And we know for a fact, because when we get over to Rahab, she talks about we're all trembling in fear. We heard about what you did. We know his name was proclaimed through all of that. The hardening of Pharaoh was an act of grace as far as the Jews were concerned, because the hardening of Pharaoh brought about their release from captivity. So that's another way to look at hardening being an act of grace. Initially, Moses just asked to be let go to go in the desert to worship, okay? And just as the unbelief of Pharaoh brought about the release of Israel, the unbelief of the Jews has also brought about the release of the Gentiles as the gospel has come to us. So you see God's good purpose in all of these things in a way that's hard for us to work out because we're not God, but it's good to look at and see. Now, Paul goes on to deal with a second objection. If God is sovereign and his will is inevitable, how can he blame us for our rebellion? Paul is going to answer this later in the next chapters, but what he does address here is the attitude that makes this response. 
And he gives us a lesson on the proper view of God and in light of who God is, the proper view of ourselves. So let's go to 19 to 21. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? Okay, so there's the objection. How can God blame us? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Okay. So Paul reminds us of our position before God and the foolishness of our making a judgment about our creator. And this reminds me of Job. Okay. The story of Job, totally unfair. He had no idea what was going on. He, he stayed true. He didn't sin against God, but he wrestled through it. But when you get to Job 38, God starts to question Job at the end of this whole big rigmarole. And he says, where were you? Or first he says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? In other words, he starts to put Job in his place. And he's kind of, he kind of reminds me of myself when I would go on a tirade with my kids. I'd make my point, and then I would elaborate for 20 minutes, giving more and more reasons why something wasn't right. And, and God does this very expertly for like four chapters at the end of Job. You should go back and read it sometime. But here's the truth. It is disrespectful and demeaning to judge God. Now, I'm not saying to ask God honest questions. I'm saying to judge God. It is disrespectful and demeaning to judge God because we are not God and we need a high view of God. Just like God said to Job, he started off in 38, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? And then he goes on and on and on and on. And finally, when we get to chapter 40, Job puts his hand over his mouth, but, but God continues for two more chapters. And then I want to read you what Job says at the end of all this um, in Job 42. And, and, and I love the end of Job because it's just such a reminder of who God is. And, and, and honestly, one, one of the good things that comes through, through suffering. In Job 42, after God has spent four chapters pretty much putting him in his place, Job says, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job says to God, you said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you will answer me. And this is Job's response. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That is the response of seeing God. And the suffering and the confusion that Job went through ended up with him being able to see God in a very deep way. And I love that piece of Job. It's not the point I'm making, but I love that piece of the, the story of Job, that there is a good purpose in suffering. Nevertheless, he needed to be put in his place with a high view of God. Now, in this thing, God, in these verses that we've seen in Romans, God is pictured as a potter, okay? And so I want, to, I want to take you back to Isaiah 64, one of the passages of the potter, the context. And I want you to see this because I think it applies to what 
one of the main points I'm trying to bring, bring out is we wrestle through um, understanding these difficult verses about the potter and the clay. In Isaiah 64, starting in verse 6, and you'll be familiar with this, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Okay, so so th- this is the clay, y'all. This is the clay. This is who we are. We're unclean, and all our righteousness are filthy rags. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and made us waste away because of our sins. Okay, so that's the clay. Yet, O oh Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And so I want you to see this, that when he says, does he not have a right to make out of the same lump of clay? We need not only a high view of God, but we need a clear picture of the clay. When we start expecting that God should do this and we're owed something, all our righteousness, filthy rags. We saw at the beginning of Romans, no one seeks after God unless God begins to draw them because of our sin. And so does he not have a right to shape and do what he wants with the clay as he finds it? Okay. Um, A lump of sinners, all deserving his wrath, but he has delayed his wrath to reveal his mercy to some. Now, let's keep going. And he says, he gives a little more explanation in 22. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, Do you see how he's making his glory known? His wrath and his power are aspects of his glory. All of his attributes are parts of his glory. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? And there, once again, we see the long-suffering of God prepared for destruction. The objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us whom he called not from only from the Jews, but from the Gentiles. So the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is a passive verb. God is not doing the preparing here. He is not actively preparing them for destruction. Men do that by their sin. They prepare themselves for destruction by their sin. So here's your next truth. God allows sin to reveal his wrath and power, which are both aspects of his glory. God allows sin to reveal his wrath and power, which are both aspects of his glory. God allows sin to reveal his wrath and power, which are both aspects of his glory. So these vessels or objects of wrath prepared, they prepare themselves. The verb is passive. It is not God preparing them. But when we get to the vessels of mercy, which speaks to believers, it says whom he prepared. You see God's action. It's an active verb, whom he prepared. So your next truth, God saving the elect displays his grace, love, and mercy, which are all aspects of his glory. God saving the elect displays his grace, love, and mercy, 
which are all aspects of his glory. God saving the elect displays his grace, love, and mercy, which are all aspects of his glory. So both reveal his glory. If you're a true believer, you are chosen by God. You are prepared by him as a vessel of mercy to display his glory. We've seen that God elects and rejects solely based on his sovereignty. But I want to tell you these verses because scripture also makes clear in Ezekiel 18.32, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In 2 Peter 3.9, God has no desire that even one person should perish. In John 6.37, Jesus says, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. How all these truths reconcile are beyond our understanding, but they're all clearly taught in Scripture. And then Paul uses Old Testament passages to support what he's teaching about election and about the gospel moving from the Jew to the Gentile as well. Um, As we've said, he often taught, and then he went back to the scriptures, which was the Old Testament, to support what he was saying. So 25 to 26 are the Hosea passages to show that God always intended to include the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Now this this certainly applied to the Jews who had rebelled, but Paul is making application of God pointing forward to the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Old Testament, which we see that in a lot of the prophets. And then he moves to the book of Isaiah and uses these passages to show that God's electing call never included every single ethnic Jew, but only a remnant, those who came by faith. So let's see what he says in 27 to 29. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, Only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants or the remnant, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Gomorrah. These passages show both those things that the Gentiles would be included and not all Israel would be saved. And remember, the whole thing he's holding here is has the word of God fallen. That's the point he's making with election and all of these details. So don't make those the key. Keep in mind that it's about God's glory. God is true to his word. God's true to his character. All of that is true. We, we don't have to doubt it. We may not understand how it all works out, but he's giving them some points to not just discount any of these things from God. God's primary purpose in election is to make his glory known. Salvation is not about us. It's about God. In saving some, he reveals mercy and compassion. In not saving all, he makes his power and wrath known. God considered the display of his attributes to be worth all of history, to be worth creation, 
to be worth the fall, to be worth redemption, to be worth election, everything else, his glory is the priority. God was and is able to offer mercy and grace because of Jesus paying the price. Here's my verse, Romans 3.25. Let me get back to that. I knew I had it in here somewhere. God presented him, speaking of Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance or patience, he had left the sins committed before unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That's how he was able to forgive people before Christ because Christ was going to come and pay the price for those that were believing God's word and trusting him by faith. He upheld his justice on the cross. So you see, all of it is about God's glory. You remember our verse? For from him and through him and to him are all things, all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. We find our security in our salvation because it rests on him. We find our joy and satisfaction in seeing and enjoying him truly for who he is, not just a weak view of God as a loving God and nothing else. That's weak. He is love, but he's so much more. We find our hope in all that he is. He is immutable. He does not change. We find our purpose in this life to display his glory and to bring others to know him, which is part of our emphasis in here at our church right now. So today I want to ask you, do you know him intimately in relationship? Have you seen your need to be saved from his holy wrath? He must display his wrath to uphold his holiness and justice. Have you turned from your sin, trusting Christ alone as your substitute? 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, today is the day of salvation. If you have any questions about that, if God is causing you to wonder see me after class find someone or just pray and ask God to help you see the truth about yourself do you desire his glory or your own are you ashamed of him are you afraid to talk about the lover of your soul do you fear man more than you love him and so you stay silent are you fulfilling your purpose for being here to bring him glory by going and making disciples and being a worker unto the harvest? Will you make the two great issues of life, the glory of God and the salvation of souls, the driving focus of your life so that God can become heavy again, not weightless in your life or in the lives of those around you? Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you that you are the king, that you are merciful and compassionate, and gracious, and faithful, and true, and long-suffering, and good, and kind, and yet, God, you are just and holy, and you must uphold your holiness by executing wrath on our sin, but God, you became our substitute. God, who is a king like that? Who is a king like that? Who is a God like that? We thank you for it. Help us to not yawn at who you are, but that you would be weighty in our life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.